This is ASAR Training and Response Podcast, Episode 4, where Eric and Carla interview Dave Polly about wildlife and disasters. Welcome, everybody, to the ASAR Training and Response Podcast this week. And with us, as always, is co-host Carla Lewis. Good morning. Hey, every, hey Eric. Hey, uh, Dave. Really excited about today's interviews. One of my favorite people who has just this amazing job, and I'm excited to hear all about it today. Yeah, and with us today is Dave Pauly, Senior Advisor for Wildlife Response and Policy for HSUS. Did I get that right, Dave? You got it right, my friend. Uh, <laughs> and we've been after Dave. Uh, we actually tried to set him up about a month ago. But Dave is kind of like smoke. You know he's there. You're not quite sure where he's at. You can't quite grab him, and he's just elusive as heck because he's out wandering the world, helping wildlife all glo- globally, and we're going to get into some of those topics today. But Dave, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for bringing your perspective, your years of, of expertise here. Um, and we're going to kind of go through a few questions that we came up with today, but we really want to hear about all your adventures uh, that you can can let us know about and some of the hot topics that are going on around the world. But first, for some of the folks, which these is going to be rare, but for folks who don't know Dave Pauly from HSUS, Dave, can you kind of introduce yourself and give us a little bit of your background and how you got to where you are today? Of course. Thank you, Eric and Carla. Uh, I, I got to start by saying I am excited to be on here. You know, I've uh, been with you guys in the field and in the classroom, and ASAR really fills the role that uh, offers training and team building and networking um, that really is important to our uh, to our vocation. So thank you for that. I've been doing this a long time, guys, um, uh, and I am blessed. It's a it's a great gig. I've done it for starting my 30th year for HSUS. But I've been really an informal wildlife rehabber for almost 50 years and a formal rehabber for 42. And I got kind of a, a weird start. I, uh, I started as a preteen on my 10th year birthday, 1965. I mean, Christmas, my dad bought me a live trap, an old have a heart double door live trap, <laughs> and turned me loose on the world. And uh, I started catching stuff. Uh, The first animal I caught was a Norway rat, and she proceeded to have babies in the trap. And the second (laughs) animal I caught was an ermine, the white phase of a long-tailed weasel. And I just started catching stuff everywhere, dogs, cats, squirrels, whatever I could catch. But my career started in kind of a unique way in that I had a uh, local game warden who kept running into me uh, in not always a positive sense. Um, he uh, he would catch me ride with my bike with a baby great horned owl in the basket or uh, uh, selling turtles, uh, western painted turtles at Faraday for pets and just things that probably were all fightable. And he finally just said to me, you know, I think you're a wildlife kid. I should get you get you hooked up with a local rehabber and with the Humane Society and and you could probably start doing this stuff legally. And so I really did. I started you know, riding my bike and doing wildlife rescues and doing rehab and dragging stuff home. And and um, it was just really a, a, a good thing. And then in 1979, when I went to college in Madison, Wisconsin, I started a wildlife damage control business, nice. taking bats out of attics, raccoons out of chimneys, all the urban wildlife conflict stuff. And I have pretty much been doing that ever since um, for 
different agencies. The disaster component really started yeah, when I probably 91 when I was with the Billings Animal Shelter and started responding to state disasters, uh, wildfires and floods. But uh, I have been doing it nationally, internationally. I've been honored to go all over the globe to uh, to Russia, to Haiti for the earthquake, to Sri Lanka, uh, 51 days at Katrina, probably 30 or 40 earthquakes. And so I've been I've been plugged into a lot of events. Right. And what year did you start with HSUS, Dave? In 1991, I started as their uh, Western Region Regional Director for Montana, Wyoming, and Idaho. And then I was doing that for probably 12 years. And at the end, I had all 14 Western states. I was the Regional Director for 14 Western states. And then since I was doing mostly wildlife stuff, they had the sense to shift me over to the wildlife department. I've been with them pretty much ever since. Wow. Well, you know, I I have a real special place for the wildlife in my heart. I actually, when I went to college, uh, I was doing an environmental studies and working for Kansas Wildlife and Parks. And my goal was to be an urban planner for green spaces for wildlife. And so to get myself through college, I worked at Kansas Wildlife and Parks, both on the wildlife side and the fishery side and i was basically a biologist tech for whoever had the grant money that year so i could go to college so i was either a fish squeezer or i was doing radio telemetry on bobcat or kestrels and doing studies and i and the one thing that i hate i loved working with the animals i loved being outside i hated writing the research papers i just couldn't get myself to sit down and do statistics and uh, I, I had my my uh, alternative was law enforcement. I ended up going the law enforcement way, but I always uh, missed the wildlife piece. So I, I have great envy to watch you on your adventures. I think it's wonderful. Well, we are soulmates, my friend. And the, the, the record keeping and the statistical stuff is never any fun for any of us. But, <laughs> but the hands-on stuff makes it all worth it. Absolutely. Dave, is there any uh, uh, particular project you have going on right now that uh, sticks out in your mind that you'd like to talk about? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm doing, I really, I've been working on Humane Puerto Rico for pre, pre, pre-Maria. And um, so that's been about six years, but now I'm going there for the spay-neuter clinics for the uh, uh, the field. Now we're doing TNR. So that's a very special program. You know, since June of 2018, I've been a very small part of a team that has spayed and neutered 43,000 dogs and cats in Puerto Rico. Wow. (laughs) A mind-boggling number, and we're going to do it through 2021, and we might do as many as 60 to 65,000 animals. And it started off being uh, owned pets, and now we're doing TNR for dogs and cats. And that has a real impact on wildlife. I mean, it's public health and safety, it's disease control, it's bite prevention, and it's helping wildlife. So it's just a really, really uh, cool and rewarding project. So that would be one. But you guys know every event, every event is unique, and every event gives its own separate rewards. And there's always, uh, uh, there's always something to be learned and something to be added to the toolkit or some new trick that we pick up on every one of those events. Yeah, and I don't know for, for our listeners that may not be in the field uh, or, or have worked a large event, you know, Dave just said a, such an important topic, trapping 
comes into play in every disaster event and whether it's you know the that we have impacted wildlife but more so remember some of these events animals are scared they run and there's a debris pile or they get caught in a debris pile and that's where they will stay until it's dark or until they're comfortable enough to come out or that debris pile is is set to be removed and so there's always a trapping program that never gets the, the due justice or, or due diligence in press and coverage of recovering these animals after the initial surge impact of the, of the disaster. And let's just, uh, I'll go back to more Oklahoma tornado. Uh, tornado goes through, everybody goes in, um, stays for 10 days, and then they pull out and they're still square miles of rubble and debris and missing animals now the trapping programs come in and you know you're trying to establish where animals may be you're putting live traps out that need to be checked on a regular basis because obviously we don't want to leave animals in traps for very long and then there's that positive reunification of these animals that they were there they were found um, or in floods and and dave you've been in plenty of floods and you've gone into that house and you've seen the muddy footprints on the flooded floor but we can't find the cat <laughs> and so what do you tell people that, hey, you're in a disaster, your pet's in the house someplace that got scared and went to hide? Is there advice that you can give to pet owners of it's not a lost cause, the animal may come back? Or, or what's your experience with some of that with, with these animals to be trapped later? Yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's an involved question. And there's no pure short answer, but there's a couple. I mean, I mean, first of all, whenever possible, Evacuate with your pets. Take them with you if you at all possibly can. It just solves a lot of problems. And there's problems, you know, with that, with housing or whatever. But if you can do that, if you can't, try to think ahead. And, you know, the evacuators, when they come to your door or on the radio, they're going to tell you, leave, and we'll let you back in as soon as we can. But the reality is that as soon as you can, it might be two weeks. It might be, you know, you don't know. So, so don't think you're leaving for six hours. So, you know, fill up the bathtub with water or the sink with some water, uh, have uh, surplus pet food out, um, have uh, comfort stations in high areas if it's a flood, you know. I mean, the Red River flood in, in North Dakota, I went in dozens of houses where people took art off their walls and did stuff and set it on the bed and then the water came up just six inches over the bed. So they actually put a lot of in, in hazard's way. And the same thing with things. Think ahead. Don't close all the doors so they can't get to the highest spot in the house. And then low, slow, and soft. You hear this on all my capture stuff. You know, don't go into the house making a lot of noise, turning over all the beds. Move slow. Listen. If you see the animal, try to get it enclosed in one room where you can close the door and then approach it low, slow, and soft. Those critters really want to get back to safety. They just don't know how. And so, you know, and if you have to leave a trap and, and set it, uh, live trap, there is no such thing as a humane live trap. There's only live traps. They're only as humane as the operator. So and you can't set those things in direct sunlight. You have to be, be aware that they are thermally dynamic and can either heat up or, you know, make an animal hyperthermic or hypothermic. Um, and an animal can stress out and hurt their teeth, gums, face, paw by struggling with that trap. So minimize the time they're in it, put a cover over it. I mean, I could do eight hours on just that. But, but the key thing is uh, 
low Sloan Soft, try to reduce the stress, try to provide whatever things you think that animal's going to need, and be prepared for the long haul, the worst case scenario. Yeah, that, that's all so good. And, and we could listen to you for eight hours as you go through some of that, uh, because it is so involved with, with catching these different species of critters. And, and, and Dave, you, you mentioned a lot of good tips there. You know, we used to back here, I'll, I'll age myself with a little bit. Back in the old days, we used to tell people to lock their pets in the bathroom and leave a little food <laughs> water. Um, but we've seen lots of changes. Um, in how you know we we do public messaging the number one being yes take your pet with you um have proper id on it all those kind of fun things um but have you seen a change in in people wanting training or adding capture techniques and animal handling techniques into their disaster planning or into their community planning uh, over the years has it become more prominent absolutely and, and you guys know the turning points for that um, I mean Andrew started the whole thing uh, Katrina was really the changing point where the country saw that that pets were the number one reason people went back into evacuated areas or pets were the number one reason people would not evacuate under an evacuation order and so uh, and it highlighted issues with you know when you go to an American Red Cross shelter there are people there that could be alert to animals so it raised all those issues, and we had to come up with balance and preparation and training. And, yeah, people really started to uh, – I mean, I've seen huge changes. In Montana here, I think uh, two decades ago, there were people who loaded a horse in their trailer once a year when they had to take it to the vet. And now they're feeding horses treats in trailers and getting horses to be acclimated to self-load on trailers and – you know, to recognize the trailer as a friendly place. So, I mean, that's just one example with the, uh, the first time you're going to evacuate and shouldn't be the first time your pet sees an airline crate. And uh, your pet shouldn't think the only time it ever goes in the car is to uh, uh, go to the vet for some evasive procedure. You know, uh, there are dog parks. Take your pet to the dog park. <laughs> get, them to love, get them to love going in the car. And, you know, evacuation becomes much easier. So there's, but yeah, I think it's demand driven. I think society, you know, uh, I'll date myself, you know, the, uh, when I had, when I had pets as a young man, I took my dog with me everywhere, but I was in the minority. You know, mm -hmm. people just didn't travel with their pets. They didn't go into restaurants with their pets. They didn't. And today, uh, uh, pets are really much more a family member than they used to be. So people are demanding services and agencies are including them in pan and plans. And it's all positive, but there are still always going to be those outliers and those situations where you have to go in and, and extricate or rescue pets that weren't taken out. Absolutely. Uh, so I'm going to change the um, topic just a little bit. You know, every time we're in a, a disaster zone, you know, we, we see the impacts to wildlife that, that occur during those disasters. What kind of information could you give to communities to maybe include wildlife in their plan? Or, you know, is there anything that they can do to help mitigate some of those um, problems that we see with wildlife during a disaster? Yeah, great, great question. Um, you know, there's there are several trains of thought. Most wildlife agencies um, say, you know, uh, the wildlife will either fly away or run away or get out of the path. And, I, and I'll use Sri Lanka as an example. When I went there for the tsunami and the Sri Lankan tsunami, um, we did learn that all the 
elephants left those uh, coastline villages three days before the storms. And oh, wow. The monkeys all left like 24 hours before the impact of the thing. So, so wildlife does have that innate thing where they can get out of the way. But um, in situations like Australia with the wildfires, where the brush fires, bush fires, where they're everywhere, um, there's really not a safe zone for them to get to. So there's those kind of issues. And then there's issues that um, uh, you just really, uh, uh, you're really talking about uh, large mammals, ungulates that can run away and birds that can fly. But wildlife includes insects and invertebrates, and small ground mammals. And uh, another example, in Hurricane Maria in Vieques Island, Puerto Rico, um, the iguanas all went up in the trees for safety. And they got hmm. beat the heck because Maria destroyed the upper trees. The um, mongoose all went underground um, for safety, and then the high floodwaters pretty much devastated them. So, uh, you know, animals try to seek safety, but they can't always because Mother Nature is Mother Nature, and, and, and you know, it can't be done. But to answer your question, definitely um, agencies should have not only animals but wildlife in their plan. They should have some contingencies. Um, it's really a lot about mitigation, Carla. It's really about um, are there safe travel zones for right. animals. It's really about if a rancher has a, a sheep-type fence and doesn't have sheep in there, well, then open the gates because when wildlife tries to move, pronghorn antelope and deer are not going to get hung up on the fence and the gates if the gates open. So, you know, there's, there's those kind of things people can do. Just think about leaving them a travel corridor. And in cases like drought and fires, maybe leaving a low stock tank where animals can get water, but have a floating board or a ramp in there so the small animals don't, you don't create a, a drowning um, thing. Um, you know, where, they, where you're actually making matters worse. And I guess that's the same in all disasters. You just don't make matters worse. And, uh, you know, and I can even, I talk about urban wildlife all the time. I'll just tell you, I tell people all the time, most situations with urban wildlife in crises was created by the property owner. They either had food out or, or didn't mow and they had a mouse infestation which attracted wildlife. So they can do simple things like put chimney caps on their chimneys, well covers over their window wells. Um, all those things are really to protect their property, but they save wildlife. So, you know, there's, there's just a lot that people can do, and all this stuff is pretty much available on the web, how you can make your backyard wildlife friendly or your property wildlife friendly. Yeah, and and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about... Um, some of our planners and some of our ACOs that are listening, you know, as, as you do your community planning and work with your individual citizens, you know, have those links uh, available to pass on uh, to those citizens. You know, the, the one thing that I really stress to our ACOs uh, is customer service is I don't know isn't usually a great answer, but hey, I can I can try to find you some information and send you a link and and even though we don't provide that service through the city, um, here's some here's some tips or some other people that may be able to answer your question. And for our emergency managers that listen in and our planners, 
be sure to include your wildlife agent or your regional wildlife officer in your ESF 11 conversations because you will have wildlife issues somewhere in the middle of your event um, and you're going to need somebody to help you with those, especially when you get into protected animals that may be impacted during an event and we don't have, you know, people with the right licensure or the right skills to deal with some of those animals. So keep in mind, yes, we always put mass care and the companion animals in there, but please loop in your wildlife uh, professionals and your rehabbers um, because that's, that's going to be an important research as, as events happen. Dave, you, you brought up a good point about urban wildlife. And this year um, we were asked by a couple of the larger cities to adapt the ASAR program and our technical training standards to the urban environment and to the concrete jungle. Typically we're always training for the rural or the, or the uh, outskirt response. And, um, but for these folks that work in the concrete jungle, our question to them was, well, what events are you, are you encountering that you have to deploy technical rescue techniques in? And we got back, well, you know, what if we have a deer in the pool? How do we safely get down to the pool? How do we get the deer out of the pool? Well, there's always the ducks in the drain. Um, are you seeing more inquiries of, or, or seeing more technical rescue in the urban environment? areas to deal with some of the wildlife issues. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, for for the reason, I mean, urban sprawl, for all the reasons, for people inappropriately feeding wildlife and then, you know, creating the problem, but, and for trends. I mean, in Texas right now, uh, feral pigs is a mm -hmm. huge issue and becoming a big issue for animal control because they're coming into the urban settings and there's not a lot of uh, good solutions for them. And it's going to get more complicated as the states address toxins and lethal methods of controlling those. So yeah, animal control officers, county planners, LEPCs, um, all have to, uh, uh, local emergency planning committees, all have to uh, have this on their uh, radar. And I, you know, I'll give you, I'll give you an example, Eric, from Katrina. Uh, we were at Lamar Dixon holding facility and we took one of the horse barns and turned it into a wildlife uh, exotic animal rescue center so they wouldn't be with the dogs and cats. And I went in there one day and there were just aquariums and aquariums and aquariums and dog kennels full of stuff, reptiles. And uh, I'm a, I know my Montana snakes, but I don't know my Louisiana snakes. So uh, I called the Louisiana herpetologist and he sent a guy over. And about a third, maybe a half of all the snakes that were brought in as pet snakes from inside people's houses were actually native Louisiana wildlife. <laughs> no. So, so yeah, no. guys, guys are picking up water moccasins thinking it's going to transplant to the rescue center. And so we had a half a day where we just went in there and said, oh, no, this is, this is native. This can go. This can go. And then we had to figure out a way to do it humanely and get them back to a safe spot but so wildlife and the other thing is people people are going to bring wildlife if they're yeah. coming through faster or they're driving down the road and they see a turtle crossing the road a lot of people are going to stop and pick it up and that's not necessarily the best interest of the turtle so you know that that kind of training comes in is is what can you do for wildlife and also how can you do that without putting yourself or other people at risk because we don't want people Park in the car on an interstate to get out and, and move a turtle. You know, 
it's got to be done safely and it's got to be done move the turtle in the direction it's going don't put it in your trunk and drive it 50 miles so that somebody's got to go back 50 miles to put it back where it came from. you know those right. kind of things so definitely that um uh, uh minimizing feeding of wildlife you know i'm not talking about bird feeders because that's probably socially ingrained but a lot of the other feeding of wildlife feeding of deer um, in my part of the world people put out corn for deer and they end up inviting a mountain lion or or coyotes in because they're concentrating the deer so sometimes what you think is helping that critter actually is putting it at risk both for predators and disease you know stuff so all that stuff yeah you know, urban wildlife is a huge area um, i'll give a plug for for the acos and stuff that are out there we have a program hsus has a program called wild neighbors and they can just go on the website and list the species that they're concerned about and they can pull up an individual page that tells them how to humanely handle uh non-lethally that species you know from exclusion mm. to to doing whatever right and you know when i yeah. i when i had my wildlife business in wisconsin in the in the 80s, um, I translocated everything. And we have learned that translocation, capture and translocation is not necessarily, in fact, it's not in the best interest of the critter in most cases. And uh, that has to really be done responsibly. So it's much better to exclude, remove the food source, deal with the symptoms rather than, rather than moving the critter because moving the critter probably isn't necessary if you do everything else right. Right. Yeah, that website he was talking about is just fantastic. As an animal control officer myself, I've used it many times. And, you know, people call all the time and, and want us to remove this, you know, this wildlife that's a nuisance. And, you know, it's, it's actually really nice to have a resource because um, we as an agency, my agency does not remove nuisance wildlife unless it's, you know, inside the home. So to have that resource for somebody to say, hey, you know, try these things, because people don't necessarily, they just assume that you're going to take the animal away. That's, you know, the only, the only resolution that they even know. So if I can say, hey, try these things, you know, and that is, that's the best thing is just to have a solution for people. Absolutely. And I'll just give, not a plug for me, just a plug for nature is that uh, so many people, go to the hardware store and buy decon mouse poison or whatever kind of mouse poison and put it out in the garage, in the woods, around the house. Um, companies are doing it all the time. That stuff isn't solving your problem. It's creating a problem. It's poisoning raptors. Um, right. It's not the best form of death. If you have to do rodents, use a snap trap and solve the problem. But the main thing is, you know, close the holes, exclude the animals from your buildings, and then you don't have to put toxins out there. And, and those toxins just you know, they don't work and they create a bigger problem than they're worth. So, you know, people need to think about those kind of things too. Yeah, definitely. And, and my 14 year old daughter, she's one of those that will stop and move the turtle or she always wanted to bring stuff home. And, and I told her when she was younger, I said, you know, the most traumatic movie I've ever seen. And she's like, what? And I said, it was Finding Nemo because they stole that poor fish from his home. I said, stop picking up the critters. Leave them alone. Yeah. And, if, you care, if you care, leave them there. That's right. right. There right. you go. Absolutely. If you care, leave them there. So uh, she's down to uh, goldfish now, but uh, she still wants to stop and pick everything up and take it home. And, yep. and, uh, so yeah. I'm, I'm and I would say to her, as I would to the rest of your listeners, there are lots of opportunities local raptor centers I, I transport birds for two different raptor centers and i mean i don't need special skill uh, you, you have to have a little skill if they're injured on the road and you have to catch them but 
generally you can just drive them. You can have, I can catch them, give them to somebody, they can drive them 150 miles to Bozeman. So people need people who just have compassion and driving skills or are able to clean kennels or do whatever. I mean, you don't have to be a wildlife specialist to help wildlife through many agencies. Yeah. And, and so we're talking to Dave, the time of year and no pun intended, the hot topic right now are the fires in Australia. And we are just getting a ton of questions uh, that we see on social media or emails of, Hey, are you deploying or how do we help? And, and it only, it's not only coming from, you know, wildlife uh, people uh, or, or specialists here in the U.S. that want to get involved, but also veterinarians and educational yeah. facilities and, and our teams. Yeah, and Dave, I know you've, you've looked at that and that you're, you're kind of working on the edges of that. Can you tell us uh, what, yeah, what you're a, seeing with that? Absolutely. It's a, it's a major disaster, which should teach us some lessons. First of all, it's huge, 15 million acres. I think as of yesterday, there were 25 human deaths. 2,000 houses destroyed. The number they're throwing around is 500 million mammals, birds, and reptiles. So that doesn't include invertebrates and insects. It's 500 million animals either killed or severely hurt. And it's it's huge, 15 million acres. So for mindset, that's about seven and a half times the size, the total size of Yellowstone National Park. Mm. I mean, it's, it's huge. It's spread across wow. the country. Um, we have a team on Kangaroo Island, which I that's about uh, 17 square miles, I think. I, I mean, 1,700 square miles. Um, mm. And they're there, and luck, uh, not luckily, but they had a fire 13 years ago, 2007, had their big, and that might help, but 13 years is enough to get a lot of undergrowth and have a problem again. So um, that's there. But to answer your question, there's a couple things people can do. First of all, don't self-deploy. Mm. I mean, unless you're plugged into a trained team and some agency is asking for you to deploy, I mean, don't go. You, you just complicate things. You add the drain on resources. Um, uh, it's just not a good thing. So so talk to local agencies. Um, the Internet's wonderful. Some are looking for volunteers. Um, and then secondly, um, if you do go, uh, be trained, I mean, be equipped, have good personal protection equipment. I mean, if you're not familiar with wild, if you're a, if you're a uh, flood expert, that's probably not the place you need to go. Um, you should have some, some fire response experience and equipment and clothing and whatever. So, so yeah, those kind of things. Secondly, the biggest need they have is cash. I mean, uh, there are dozens of groups that are doing amazing work for wildlife and for humans, and you can go on the net and find the charity of your choice who who needs they need cash to get what they need they can buy gas they can buy whatever they need so you know that's the thing and then my third one really has more to do with not australia but just in general look at where you're living and see if you're next see if there are i mean climate change this is a climate change thing i mean there are deniers but last year was the driest and hottest year ever for australia and um uh, there are Many, I mean, just look at the weather, look at the things that are going around our country, and uh, there are disasters, and all those disasters impact animals. So, you know, get involved locally. Um, you know, I, uh, my last post last week on uh, on Facebook was about planting trees, and, and uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's just little things we can do to help the earth, and we need to do them, because 
if we don't, there's going to be more major, major uh, disasters like this. So, but everybody can help. Um, uh, the internet's a great tool to go on and find a group that you're comfortable with and can support, and then you can help them the way they tell you that they need help, rather than just, you know, sending a box of uh, whatever you think they need. They they know what they need. Just like you said, there's just no shortage of places, and they're always very, very upfront on their needs. And with things like Amazon, um, wish lists, and things like that, you can get those, uh, those rescue groups the the things they actually need. Or you know, like you said, just money is is one of the the biggest ways you can help out. So, Dave, um, what kind of advice do you you know? People are always saying they want to help with this, with any disaster. What kind of advice would you give people? Like, is there a particular website that you're um, that you like? Is there a group? Is there, you know, how can people get more information? Absolutely. Well, you guys won't be surprised by my comment that everything starts locally. You know, I mean, that is the disaster credo. So look locally first. I mean, your local emergency planning committee might have ideas somewhere in your community or your county. There probably is uh, NGO, a non-government organization, a shelter, a humane society, a wildlife rehab center that can use help. And it might not be glamorous help. It might be stuffing envelopes. It might be cleaning cages. It might be, but it's stuff that makes a difference. So do that. And then the training opportunities, um, again, the internet has just made that phenomenal. I mean, the, the two main groups for wildlife rehab or wildlife response are the IWRC, the International Wildlife Resource, uh, International Wildlife yeah, Resource Council, and the NWRA, the National Wildlife Rehab Association. And, um, and you can, uh, you know, go on those sites, and they will steer you towards local agencies. There's dozens of websites like Wildlife Now and Wildlife Rescue. So if you're going down the road and you see an injured hawk on the side of the road, with your phone today, with your smartphones, you can just punch in injured hawk in Kansas, and sites will come up that respond to those things, and you can call them from the site, and you can GPS mark the site, and so you can send a pin. I mean, there's just dozens of things that the average citizen can do that will make a difference without putting themselves at risk and without having to spend a lot of money or time. But uh, we need you. I mean, the groups, the, the groups need people who are motivated. And then also locally on your property, if you treat your home, your property, as a potential wildlife refuge, you know, you have you plant with ideas for for pollinators. Uh, it's another big kick of mine is we, uh, America is not kind to to bees and hummingbirds. Uh, we're killing them all the time, to all insects. So, you know, if you're going to plant flowers, take a look and see what flowers are best for the pollinators in your area. Um, you know, just those little kind of things, a little uh, bird bath. Uh, you might think might not be visited by birds, but I guarantee it will be visited by lots of insects and lots of other critters. So, you know, if you're in an arid region, water can be, you know, a savior. So there's all those sorts of things, but people can get involved. Um, and there's more opportunities than they probably have time for. <laughs> well, Dave, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. And, and we definitely will be circling back with you as more wildlife issues come up over the, over the disaster seasons and, and touch bases. This is usually one of those topics that 
again, isn't addressed up front and isn't thought about until it happens. And then a lot of people don't know what resources to go to. So we're glad to have an expert like you as a, as a friend and, and trusted colleague and are so happy you could uh, join the show today. I am honored to be with you guys. Well, Ms. Carlin, any parting thoughts before we end the show? Yeah, once again, thank you so much, Dave. This was great. Um, everybody just uh, subscribe to the podcast so that you know the newest one when it comes out. Check out our Instagram and Facebook pages and check us out at acertraining.com.